Welcome to the Heart Failure Insights podcast. In this podcast, we hope to explore the latest treatment and management options for heart failure patients. Whether you're a healthcare professional, patient, carer, or family member looking to learn more, Dr. Julianne Locke, our host, will be interviewing some of the leading cardiology experts across the globe to help us uncomplicate the subject. Arwin Cardiology presents the Heart Failure Insights Podcast. This episode is not intended for US and UK-based healthcare professionals. Welcome to this Heart Failure Insights Podcast. My name is Dr. Julianne Locke, and in this series, we will explore the latest treatment and management options for heart failure patients with preserved or reduced ejection fraction. From discussing the epidemiology of the disease to the management of patients with particular comorbidities, this podcast will arm you with the information you need to improve your clinical decision making and provide your patients with more treatment options. In the last episode, we discussed some promising results in the Emperor Preserved trials, where empagliflozin was shown to benefit patients with preserved ejection fraction. In this podcast, we will discuss the benefits of empagliflozin in heart failure patients with reduced ejection fraction, with a particular emphasis on cardiovascular and renal outcomes. Joining me for this episode is Professor Javid Butler. He is president at Baylor Scott and White Research Institute in Dallas, Texas, and distinguished professor of medicine at the University of Mississippi in Jackson, Mississippi in the US. His main area of research is heart failure, a topic on which he has authored more than 650 peer-reviewed publications. Professor Butler, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. Thank you very much. I guess it might be a really good place to start off was just a reminder to the listeners of what was observed in the Emperor Preserved trial. Yeah, so Emperor Preserved trial, like uh, Emperor Reduced, was designed to look at outcomes of patients with heart failure, irrespective of diabetes, with or without diabetes. Uh, but the focus was on patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction, defined as ejection fraction greater than uh, 40%. The trial was designed to answer three specific questions. Uh, time to cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization was the primary endpoint. Uh, if that endpoint were to be met, then there were two pre-specified hierarchical secondary endpoints, including total heart failure hospitalizations, uh, first and recurrent, and then renal function preservation. We know related to aging and comorbidities and heart failure, there's a progressive decline in renal function. So whether you can slow that progressive decline by looking at EGFR. So, so those are the three endpoints, and the, the study met all its three uh, endpoints. Uh, the primary endpoint, cardiovascular death, heart failure hospitalization was reduced by 21% relative risk reduction. Total heart failure hospitalizations was reduced by 27% relative risk reduction. And uh, uh, EGFR slow preservation uh, was in the uh, was about 1.34 ml per minute per year uh, preservation as well. So all three were met. And then, of course, there was a whole series of secondary outcomes that were looked at. Uh, the more important one that I would mention, one, uh, no difference in patients with or without diabetes. Both groups of patients benefited equally. And then there was uh, analyses done on quality of life and health status. And patients uh, on ampagliflozin uh, had a significantly better uh, reporting uh, quality of life and health status at all three points, early at three months, intermediate at eight months, and then long-term at 12 months. And I guess it's probably quite interesting there, isn't it, that we were seeing 
benefits with empagliflozin that were not really observed with other antihyperglycemic drugs. I suppose so there must be really a different mechanism at work there. And talk me through then this need to look at people across the spectrum in terms of their ejection fraction. So this leads us on, I suppose, to the fact that we know SGLT2 inhibitors are likely to exert a mechanism that's different. It's not just about blood glucose management. And that's reduced the risk of complications from heart failure. So how have we gone to look then at patients with a reduced ejection fraction? So not just those with preserved ejection fractions. So talk me through this other trial that was done, Emperor Reduced. Yeah, so this is, let me me put this a little bit into perspective because this is a really important point that you're highlighting. So uh, first, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that these are good antihyperglycemic agents and they're good anti-diabetes drugs. So nothing that we will discuss in terms of the cardiovascular outcomes in patients with or without diabetes takes away from the fact that these uh, drugs lower glucose and should be given to patients for the management of diabetes, but that's a separate issue. But when we first notice heart failure benefit in patients with diabetes in the emperor Gautman trial and subsequently in other trials, what was interesting to note is that the beginning hemoglobin A1C, the ending hemoglobin A1C, that the changes in hemoglobin A1C, glucose levels, none of that correlated with outcomes. In other words, the benefit was being driven uh, by mechanisms other uh, than glycemic control. So clearly these drugs have mechanisms uh, beyond just glycemic control. So that led to a whole bunch of uh, uh, studies, both in animals and humans. And at this point, you know, we know that these drugs uh, uh, exert beneficial effect on the cardiac structure and function, vascular structure and function, uh, renal uh, preservation and renal function, and, and a whole litany of sort of uh, uh, systemic effects, inflammation, oxidative stress, autophagy, ADP uh, uh, generation, et cetera. So now there are a couple of interesting things that come up, which led to emperor reduce and emperor preserve trials. One uh, is that the mechanism of action is uh, far beyond glycemic control, but if it is beyond glycemic control, then of course uh, the drug may benefit both uh, diabetes and uh, no uh, diabetes patients. And therefore these trials were done irrespective of diabetes. In other words, empagliflozin was being thought of as a cardiovascular risk modifying agent, not as a diabetes agent uh, per se. So that's one thing. The second thing is that so far, all our therapies were targeted to neurohormonal modulation. And therefore, we have seen benefit in heart failure with reduced, but not in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Because for neurohormonal modulators to be very effective, you need to have neurohormonal activation. And in patients with really preserved ejection fraction, there's not a whole lot of neurohormonal activation to begin with. Whereas with SGLT2 inhibitors, the mechanism of action is quite wide, and it is not entirely dependent on neurohormonal activation per se. And, and, And the mechanism of action is wide enough that it can give you a little bit of a sense of why the same drug can prevent heart failure and treat heart failure in both HEFREF and HEFPEF. So that led to the development of this, this broad program, Emperor program with Emperor Reduce and Emperor Preserve. In Emperor Reduce, we focused on patients with ejection fraction of 40% or less, uh, but we looked at the same three outcomes, cardiovascular death, heart failure hospitalization, total heart failure hospitalization, uh, and renal function preservation. And talk us through, I suppose, the scale of the study. I mean, this wasn't just 100 patients. This is a fairly extensive study. I think it's probably quite important for the listeners that we hammer home how extensive this study was. 
so yes and no. I, I almost like 85% agree with you, but not 100% agree with you. And, and, and the reason I say this is that uh, as we get good at uh, developing effective therapies for heart failure, uh, the trial sizes uh, continue to increase. So for instance, if you look at some of the recent trials uh, within the HFREF space, like uh, uh, Galactic HF or Paradigm HF, I mean, those were 8,000 patient trials, right? So Ember-Reduce was about 3,700 patients or so. Uh, so it was a pretty big trial. As you mentioned, it was a morbidity mortality trial, uh, not a 100-patient trial, not a mechanistic study per se, it was large enough. Having said that, uh, this was still not a five, six, seven thousand patient trial. So we had to modulate our inclusion criteria a little bit uh, to keep up with the with the event rate. So if you look at the inclusion criteria for the trial, uh, those patients with ejection fraction less than a 30, uh, we had an inclusion criteria of NT-Pro BNP of uh, greater than 600. But we do know that uh, heart failure outcomes track with ejection fraction within the HFREF patient population. So the lower the ejection fraction, the higher the event rate. So we were just a little bit concerned that uh, if, if by chance, you know, when you start the trial, you just never know who you're going to get. If by chance, the majority of the patients were say between 30 to 40% ejection fraction, and if they don't have a lot of events, uh, then uh, then we may be a little bit uh, underpowered or the trial may go on for a very, very long time. Uh, so therefore, we modulated the NT-ProBNP inclusion criteria uh, and really elevated it for 31 to 35 and then really elevated like 2,500 uh, NT-ProBNP without uh, atrial fibrillation and 5,000 with atrial fibrillation for 35 to 40%. So yes, it was a pretty big trial. Uh, but the idea was to look at morbidity, mortality, and it did require some uh, risk uh, uh, modulation. One last thing I was also mention is that these trials stand out that we enroll patients with EGFR all the way down to 20. So this was a huge unmet need in the heart failure literature because all the trials kind of stop at EGFR of 30. Uh, there's one trial with uh, very Seguard Victoria that went down to 15. And other than that, to my knowledge, this is the only other trial that has gone down to, uh, to less than 30 and both Emperor Reduced and Emperor Preserved uh, went to an EGFR of uh, 20. And what I found really quite interesting about this study, and, and there will be a link in the podcast description to the paper, the, the key paper around this, is that it was really very well matched between the control groups and those who got the intervention. I thought that was, you know, even with the randomization, there was well matched on a lot of factors, you know, renal function, the existing treatment that people were using. So I thought it was quite um it was quite good. So for this try, people were kept on their existing treatment and either given empagliflozin or not. What were the primary and secondary outcomes that you were looking at? Yeah. So, so first, even though I completely agree with you, the the, the magic of randomization works when it works, and it uh, it worked here. Uh, the trial was designed to answer three questions: uh, cardiovascular death, heart failure, hospitalization. There was a, a sequential hierarchical secondary endpoints. Only if we were to meet our first uh, primary endpoint, then we would go down, look at total hospitalization first, and recurrent heart failure hospitalization. And if that were to be met, uh, then we would look at renal function preservation in terms of EGFR. Then there was a whole bunch of secondary outcomes, including quality of life, uh, clinical uh, renal composite uh, endpoint, uh, uh, et cetera, like worsening heart failure events, outpatient events uh, 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 as well. One thing I do want to highlight, though, is how in 
incredibly well these patients were treated at baseline. Because when you do a trial in HEFPEF, or up until recently when you did a trial in HEFPEF, uh, there was no standard of care, so you just went ahead and uh, uh, give it against placebo. But in HEFREF, we have a lot of different therapies, so you want to make sure that it's a fair comparison, and you're really trying to get to the incremental benefit of new therapy. So you want the baseline therapy to be pretty good. And in this trial, uh, you know, close to 90% of the patients were on RAS inhibitors and 90% of the patients were on beta blockers. And indication uncorrected use of MRA was about 70%. So first of all, about 70% is, is, is way too high, met better than any registry. But what I mean by indication uncorrected is that, remember, we took patients to EGFR less than 20 as well in this trial where MRAs are contraindicated. So if you adjust for that, then the MRA use in the indicated patient was also hitting about 80% or so. So whatever results are we are seeing is on top of just simply excellent baseline medical therapy. And I guess I'd really like to explore more in what you saw in the key primary and secondary outcomes. So what did you find at the end of the trial? Yeah, so we were sort of very happy when the results came out. Uh, the, the, the trial was positive, uh, not, not uh, you know, uh, borderline statistically significant positive where people are scratching their head about the clinical relevance was highly statistically significantly positive, but highly clinically meaningful and relevant result was uh, seen as well. The curves started separating early. Actually, we went back and looked at it. When was the first time the Kaplan-Meier curve separated uh, in retrospect to achieve uh, p-value uh, significance? Was the day 12. So the benefit is really early. Wow. The primary endpoint cardiovascular death, heart failure hospitalization, there was a 25% relative risk reduction. Again, keep that in mind on top of all of the therapies that we were uh, giving uh, total heart failure hospitalization uh, benefit somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% relative risk reduction, renal function preservation about 1.73 ml per minute per year, slowing of the decline in the renal function, uh, quality of life score, whether we look at symptom burden, uh, clinical summary score, which is symptom burden and physical limitation, or you look at the comprehensive health status, quality of life, social integration, sexual function, sort of put all of that together, OSS, overall summary score, uh, substantially improved with the use of empagliflozin and with placebo, there was worsening. I gave you a little bit of an idea of how early the clinical benefit was. So how early do you get symptomatic benefit? Well, I can't tell you because KCCQ was first measured at three months, but we measured a New York Heart Association class as early as four weeks, and there were already statistically significant improvement in New York Heart Association class uh, uh, seen as well. And then finally, we looked at the translation of this uh, EGFR slope into clinically meaningful or the clinically relevant renal uh, composite endpoint that had things like uh, need for renal transplantation, need for dialysis, end-stage kidney disease, or greater than 40% sustained reduction in EGFR. And that was uh, reduced literally slashed in half a 50% relative risk reduction. One thing that was quite interesting is that the patients who are on empagliflozin seem to have a higher risk of maybe an uncomplicated uh, genital tract infection. What do you think was maybe the cause of that? How do you think that sort of weighs up in terms of risk benefit of treating patients with empagliflozin? 
Yeah, no, no, very important question because sometimes you get so excited about the positive results that we need to look at the safety uh, uh, as well. Uh, so uh, point well taken, uh, uh, genital mycotic infection with these agents have been noted right from the beginning when the earlier trials were done in patients with diabetes. So first, there's no really convincing data that uh, it increases the risk of sepsis or upper urinary tract infection or complicated UTI. So it is just sort of the local genital mycotic infection. So that's one. Two, as we have gotten smarter to use of these with the use of these drugs if you look at the earlier trials you know 10 12 years ago diabetes trials uh, the genital mycotic infection was you know six seven percent of the time it was reported now it's in the two percent range so yes i don't want to undermine the, the importance but with simple measures of genital hygiene keeping the area dry and clean and washing it uh, the rate was about 2.2 percent versus 0.7 percent so yes it is three folds higher but the absolute risk is about two percent, uh, and you can easily treat it with uh, uh, either topical or, or oral uh, therapy. Uh, so the recommendation is to just continue the therapy uh, through. Now, uh, as I mentioned, uh, no convincing evidence that it increases the risk of UTI, but if somebody today actually has an active UTI, I would probably treat the UTI before starting the drug. If somebody develops genital mycotic infection, uh, you can treat, uh, uh, continue the treatment and just treat the genital mycotic infection, give the hygiene indications, and the most of the patients uh, are not going to have recurrent UTI. Now, having said that, Every now and then, you're going to have a patient who's just not going to tolerate it, and you just cannot use an SGLT2 inhibitor. So a typical scenario, I would say, would be a nursing home female who is on a diaper who just gets recurrent genital mycotic infection, and, and they may just not be able to tolerate it. Exactly. So the it's that weighing up, isn't it, of the risk versus the benefit yeah. to the patient, which is key to what all clinicians do. A key part of this work was to look at the impact of empagliflozin, I suppose, on various subgroups of patients with reduced ejection fraction. So what did you find when we look at patients and their other comorbidities? Yeah, so we really investigated this in, in quite a lot of detail and uh, had a lot of uh, academic discussions with our friends. So one, diabetes, no diabetes made no difference, uh, especially in half-trap patient, RNA or no uh, RNA therapy made no difference. Uh, we looked at CKD every which way, uh, both the safety and the efficacy, no issues, patients with or without baseline CKD uh, uh, benefited uh, uh, from the therapy. Other uh, comorbidities that we looked at, again, really no no signal of uh, heterogeneity. Uh, with some of the neurohormonal blockers, we have found a difference uh, in terms of the sex distribution of benefits. So women tended to benefit more than men here. We did not find any sex uh, uh, interaction per se. Both men and women uh, benefited with the therapy. Uh, now, we have data on close to 10 thousand patients between Emperor Reduce and Emperor Preserve, whatever the number is, 9,700 something, but, you know, pretty large database. So we were able to combine both the databases to see the benefit across the range of uh, ejection fraction. So if you look at it, uh, statistically speaking, there was absolutely no heterogeneity seen in terms of the benefit across the risk, uh, across the spectrum of ejection fraction per se. Now, if you visually look at it, uh, between the EF of 65 to 70%, there was less benefit. Uh, so some uh, interpreted that uh, as attenuation of benefit over EF of 65%. But then over 70%, there was even more benefit, which obviously makes uh, no, no clinical sense. Uh, so this is all subgroup analysis, multiple uh, 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 
you know, repeated analysis and chance finding, uh, basically from a statistical perspective, no heterogeneity and then subsequent studies have also uh, confirmed that. So we truly have for the first time a therapy that works across the spectrum of ejection fraction, irrespective uh, of what you're starting EFS. And I suppose what was quite interesting is that, you know, there were some even more positive results for patients who were on other therapies. Uh, talk us through a little bit about what you saw there. Yeah. So, you know, if you are giving two therapies uh, that have overlapping mechanism of action, then sometimes all you get is side effects, but there is no incremental benefit per se. So like, for instance, we have done studies uh, where adding an angiotensin receptor blocker on top of an ACE inhibitor to see whether there is any incremental benefit, but there are overlapping mechanism of action, no benefit, but more side effects. But when we give therapies that are parallel mechanism of action, not largely overlapping, then the benefit is seen irrespective of whether somebody is on baseline medical therapy with one drug or another. So for instance, uh, we have data for MRAs with or without beta blockers, they work. We have data with SGLT2 inhibitors with or without RNA, they work. We have data with RNA with or without MRA, they work. In other words, these data tell us that sequencing is not that important. Just start the medication, whatever medication you have, you can go ahead and start it. You don't have to prep the heart with one medication before you give the other medication per se. Having said that, and I say this with, with a lot of caution because these are all secondary analyses and we can all get fooled by the secondary analysis, but it turns out uh, that if you are well-treated at baseline, at least numerically, you may actually benefit more with the addition of uh, newer medications as well. Uh, we have even seen that in post-MI revascularization studies as well, that people who are revascularized may respond better to medical therapy uh, uh, as well. So in other words, uh, I mean, we should just really strive for optimal medical therapy for all our patients. Thank you so much, Professor Butler, for this really informative discussion and insight into the recently reported observed benefits of empagliflozin in patients with reduced ejection fraction with or without diabetes. It's been really interesting to see how a whole host of patients may benefit from treatment with empagliflozin and that you know, it's looking very good in terms of the risk benefit ratio in terms of its safety profile is looking very promising in treating more and more patients with heart failure. If you wish to find out more about this Emperor reduced clinical trial, please do click on the link for the paper in the show description. That's all we have time for in this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And I do hope you enjoyed this episode. In future episodes, we will explore treatment options for heart failure and some real world case studies. Until next time, take care, stay safe, and goodbye for now. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast and look forward to seeing you next time. Don't forget to stay up to date with all the latest discussions and to help spread awareness. Follow and subscribe. You can find us on your favourite podcast platform and rowin-cardiology.com. <laughs>